Coalition countries are hoping to soon start training Ukrainian pilots on flying F-16 fighter jets. So having air superiority is essential, I think, for Ukraine in the future to be able to deter uh, Russia uh, from, uh, from trying this, this again. Plus, cash-strapped Pakistan welcomes the arrival of a first shipment of discounted crude oil from Russia. Right now, the economy has been performing exceptionally poorly. It's been on the brink of default since last year. And later in the program, an exhibition of Ukrainian traditional clothing and unique art pieces opens in Los Angeles. Today is Monday, June 12th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Most of Kherson remained inundated on Monday, although floodwaters had begun to subside following the destruction of southern Ukraine's Kahovka Dam. This, as Ukrainian military officials say, their troops have retaken another southeastern village from Russian forces, among the first small successes in stepped-up counteroffensive operations against Moscow's more than 15-month invasion. I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv for an update. It sounds like they're having some success. What can you tell us? We have already uh, official confirmation of certain liberations uh, of the territories, and we can assume that this is probably the beginning of this so-awaited counteroffensive. A lot of experts uh, expect some wider moves uh, by Ukrainian forces, but so far we can say that Ukrainian forces have already liberated some of the settlements at the border of Donetsk and Zaporizhia region. So uh, we clearly see that Ukrainian forces are taking this uh, active moves very close to the Parisian region. Not only Donetsk region is uh, under this action. So it might be that this is one of the directions, uh, one of the main maybe even directions of this counteroffensive. But again, we will follow the updates because today we continue to receive certain confirmations from the Ministry of Defense about liberation of the settlements in the Donetsk region and in the Parisian region. And uh, also uh, at the border of those regions. So, Anna, this ongoing crisis that will be a crisis for a long time, I'm sure, the flooding that resulted from the destruction of the Kahovka Dam, it sounds like there is now an investigation into exactly what happened? Yeah, so President Zelensky announced that uh, international criminal court representatives have already visited Kherson region. He said that they already started the investigation of the explosion of Kohovka uh, hydroelectric station and dam. He did not provide any particular details, but he said that on the first day after this catastrophe happened, general prosecutor of Ukraine, he made an official request to the office of the prosecutor of International Criminal Court, and that at this point, their work has already started. So in terms of updates from the region, we have uh, information from uh, Kherson region that the water level started to go down. And for the moment, uh, it is lower now than it was previously. And now it's three meet- a bit more than three meters. And in Mykolaiv region as well, the water started to go down and uh, the level is now 
now also less, uh, six centimeters less. Still, uh, the the consequences are still extremely serious and they are still extremely visible and ongoing. And evacuation is still also ongoing. Uh, and also there is confirmation from Ukrainian officials that it was also possible to evacuate at least 112 people from the uh, left bank of, of Dnieper River of Kherson region, which is under Russian control. So more than 100 people have been already evacuated by Ukrainian uh, authorities from the occupied territories. This includes seven children, according to Kherson region authorities. So again, evacuation of people, pets, any possible rescue operations are still ongoing. And Ukrainian volunteers are, are continuing to, uh, to help people uh, in the region. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kiev. Environmental groups and aid agencies say it will take a long time in assessing the extent of the still undetermined environmental catastrophe that awaits Ukraine following the destruction of the dam. VOA's Arash Arabasadi has more on the potential threats to ecosystems and even Europe's largest nuclear power plant. Floodwaters last week poured from the Kahovka Dam after a deliberate explosion triggered on the Russian-occupied side of the Soviet-era structure along the Dnipro River in Ukraine. Both Ukraine and Russia pointed fingers at each other for what U.S. intelligence analysts say likely was an act of Russian sabotage, according to the New York Times. Flooding on both sides of the disputed dam carried residential and industrial waste through large parts of the region. Environmental groups warned the damage could collapse entire ecosystems and alter the landscape of Ukraine for decades. An expert for protected habitats for the Ukraine Nature Conservation Group, Katerina Filiuta, speaking with the Associated Press. The consequences to come will be for our children and grandchildren, just as we are the ones now experiencing the consequences of the Chernobyl disaster. In April 1986, Reactor 4 at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant melted down. According to the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, roughly 350,000 people fled the disaster while some suffered cancers from radiation poisoning. The UN added that the Chernobyl disaster altered the environment and food supplies for years. Environmentalists warn Ukraine's history may be repeating itself following wide-scale flooding that is inherently contaminated and wreaking havoc on local ecosystems. The Ukraine Nature Conservation Group's Katerina Filiuta again speaking with the Associated Press. If this area serves as a nesting place for a colony of bird species, it is possible they will rebuild their colony when water recedes within about 7 to 10 years. However, when it comes to ecosystems that have been destroyed, such as the sandy ecosystems that once existed in our unique territory, their recovery may take decades. But downstream from the Kohovka Dam, much of the Ukrainian city of Kherson is now completely underwater. Immediate concerns like clean drinking water for the more than quarter million people living here take priority over longer-term environmental impacts. Experts say the dangers of the dam burst will only grow. The facility is part of the Kahovka hydroelectric station that not only supplies water to the Russian annexed Crimean Peninsula, but also to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest in Europe. A
Nasher Basadi, VOA News. As Ukrainian troops counter Russian defenses in a second summer of fighting, Kyiv's forces are facing an enemy that has made mistakes and suffered setbacks in the war. But as Associated Press correspondent Charles De Ledesma reports, from GPS-guided bombs to electronic warfare, Russia is improving its capability. Analysts say Moscow's learned from earlier blunders and is improving its weapons and skills. Russian troops have built heavily fortified defences along the 600-mile front line, and its tech sector has honed electronic weapons able to reduce Ukraine's edge in combat drones and turned heavy bombs from its massive Cold War-era arsenal into precision-guided gliding munitions capable of striking targets without putting its warplanes at risk to changing Russian tactics along with increased troop numbers and improved weaponry could make it challenging for Ukraine to score any kind of quick, decisive victory. I'm Charles Duladesma. A coalition of nations, including the United States and eight European countries, is working to start this summer on training Ukrainian Air Force pilots on how to fly F-16 fighter jets and use them in combat against Russian forces. Here's Dutch Defense Minister Kaja Olongran. So having air superiority is essential, I think, for Ukraine in the future to be able to deter uh, Russia uh, from uh, from trying this this again and the, uh, having the, the capability uh, that we're starting on working on now with training of Ukrainian pilots on the F-16 would of course greatly add to the strength uh, of the Ukrainian Air Force in the future. Well, it will be a very strong weapons system that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says could be a game changer. Olegron says it won't be available in the battle anytime soon. We are now really into looking into all the logistic details. Uh, and it's really a quite a, a complicated process that we're looking at. Uh, we have to look at... Uh, what 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 capabilities do, do they already have? How is their English language? Uh, what what group can we start with? On what level are they actually? So we'll have to find out how how it works. But uh, the sooner the better, because when when you start, you you know you get a better hang of this, uh, and then from there you can you can build upon that. So yes, uh, this summer is our ambition, uh, and we'll see if that's realistic. Ukrainian Air Force pilots say they are eager to learn how to fly the F-16 fighter jets. U.S. President Joe Biden is set to meet outgoing NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg at the White House this week as jockeying to secure Stoltenberg's successor intensifies. While the White House says the official agenda for the meeting is to discuss the alliance's July summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, the issue of who will be next at NATO's helm during this difficult period in its 74-year history will no doubt be front and center as the alliance faces Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. The White House has warned private entities, especially technology companies, about the risks of their products ending up in Iranian hands. The White House says Russia has been using hundreds of kamikaze drones and attacking cities like Kyiv and destroying Ukraine's infrastructure. VOA's Persian Service White House correspondent Farhad Pulati discussed the issue with U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby. On uh, the U.S. government advisory regarding Iran-Russia deepening military cooperation on the UAV. Um, what advice uh, does the administration have 
by, by issuing this new advisory for non-partner nations. And do you think the new advisory, will it address the black market? Well, we want to make sure that uh, private uh, entities, certainly uh, technology companies, understand the risks of uh, their products potentially ending up in Iranian hands to be used for the manufacture Iranian drones in this case that could be used to kill innocent Ukrainian people. So the purpose of the advisory was really to make sure that the business community uh, understands our concerns uh, and are taking a look at their own processes and procedures. In the past two weeks, Iran unveiled a hypersonic missile called Fatah and a 2K range missile called Khaybar. Um, with the arms trade uh, mentioned in the United Nations Security Council 2231 coming to an end in October 2023, uh, which is this year in a few months, and with the Russia veto power, what is the U.S. hoping to do? Well, I can't get ahead of the UN process here, uh, but you're right. Uh, the, this activity by Iran, particularly with uh, ballistic missiles, uh, is a violation of 2231. Again, I won't get ahead of process here and where it's going. Uh, clear violations. We're going to continue to work with our allies and partners at the UN and outside the UN to make sure that we're putting enough pressure on Iran uh, so that they uh, stop this destabilizing activity. Uh, their ballistic missile program continues to improve. It presents a, a clear threat to the region, certainly to our friends in the region. And now some of these capabilities, not ballistic missiles necessarily, but in terms of UAVs, now this capability, this technology is being used inside Ukraine to kill innocent Ukrainians. And now we know that Iran is working with Russia on the potential uh, construction uh, of a manufacturing facility or the conversion of one uh, to be used inside Russia to actually produce organically there inside Russia uh, Iranian-designed UAVs. So all the more reason uh, to continue to, that pressure on, on the regime. Thank you. Um, so Europeans swap their prisoners with Iran. What is the holdup for the Americans in Iran? I mean, you mentioned it behind the podium that blue passport is a blue passport. So what is the holdup for the uh, I, I would tell you that we uh, never lose sight of our obligations, our sacred obligation to, to get home wrongfully detained Americans overseas, including in Iran. I don't have anything uh, with spe specific cases to, to talk to you today. I can just tell you that uh, we never stop working on this. Uh, we're always going to try to find uh, a way to bring these Americans home uh, in a way that comports with our obligation to them, but also uh, with our national security. Uh, and, we're and we're doing that right now. That was U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby speaking with VOA's Persian Service White House correspondent Farhad Huladi. Meanwhile, Russian news media reported Saturday that an American musician who has lived in Russia for more than a decade has been arrested on suspicion of drug trafficking. A Moscow court ordered him to be held for two months in pretrial detention. Pakistan began offloading its first-ever shipment of Russian crude oil Monday, announcing the arrival of a Russian vessel carrying a little more than 45,000 metric tons of crude oil. Pakistan's prime minister said in a tweet Sunday night that the country was moving one step at a time toward prosperity, economic growth, energy security, and affordability. However, the extent 
extent of relief for the crisis-riddled economy is a bit unclear. Joining us from the capital, Islamabad, VOA's Pakistan Bureau Chief, Sarah Zaman. Sarah, Pakistan's purchase gives Russia a new outlet, adding to Moscow's growing sales to India and China as it's been redirecting oil from Western markets because of the Ukraine conflict. Pakistan's neighbors, India and China, have also been ramping up imports since last year. First of all, tell us how big of a deal it is for Pakistan to get Russian oil. So thank you, Lori. It is a big deal for Pakistan because for Pakistan also, this is a diversification of its energy uh, market because Pakistan has traditionally been getting oil from and, you know, crude and other energy imports from Saudi Arabia and UAE, primarily the United Arab Emirates. And generally, it's been getting its energy needs met through its Gulf allies. Uh, So Russia, it's the first time that Pakistan is getting uh, crude from Russia. Uh, Traditionally, Pakistan has not been a Russian ally. It's arch rival India and Russia have always enjoyed a very close relationship. And that is why India was able to ramp up uh, its uh, import of Russian energy products. But for Pakistan, this is the first time in the country's 75-year history. And this is also a bit of a departure because Pakistan has been an ally of the U.S. and other Western countries. So it's it's a change in Pakistan's policy to an extent. Um, it's also a diversification for Pakistan's market as well. And because Pakistan is terribly cash-strapped right now, the economy has been performing exceptionally poorly. It's been on the brink of default since last year. Inflation has hit a roughly you know 38%, which is a record. The economy has grown at only 0.29% in the fiscal year that's ending uh, at the end of June. So given how difficult Pakistan's economic circumstances are, uh, it is expected by authorities at least that this is going to give some kind of a relief to Pakistanis because the oil is coming at a discount. Uh, So it will ease the pain for Pakistanis at the pump who have been obviously dealing with almost 38% annual inflation, which is a record high. Right. So Pakistani authorities have been sort of going back and forth on how much relief this could provide. Of course, when this deal was uh, in the works last year, the idea was that if India and other countries are getting oil at a discount from Russia, why not Pakistan? So that's what basically got this deal rolling. Uh, But we also saw that over time, the government officials tried to downplay uh, the impact of just how much relief this could give to Pakistanis. But today, I've noticed that the local media was once again reporting, uh, quoting the Petroleum Minister Musaddiq Malik saying that Pakistanis will see a difference in a couple of weeks. But I've spoken to an oil trading expert, and he raised a couple of interesting points. First, he said that because Pakistan is cash-trapped, more than discount, what Pakistan right now needs is credit. Now, in the past, Pakistan has been able to get fuel on credit from Saudi Arabia, but this time we've noticed that in the most recent budget that Pakistan's federal government presented for the next fiscal year that's starting in July, there was no facility of that kind mentioned in it from Saudi Arabia. It didn't say that Pakistan is going to get fuel on credit from Saudi Arabia. So the main point that the expert was raising was that if it's not on credit, a cash-strapped Pakistan cannot get as much benefit as it would like to. And the other point that the oil trading expert Ahmed Vakar raised was that the cost of Russian cargo has increased in the last year because now demand for cheap Russian energy products has increased. So now there are more buyers in the market and it's not as cheap as it was 
10 months ago, then also the distance between Russia and Pakistan is such that that also adds to the cost of cargo. So because of all these additional costs that have come up over the year, it's difficult to say just how much ease this will bring for Pakistani consumers. And last but not the least, this is the first time that Pakistan has acquired Russian crude. Pakistan's refineries have not produced from Russian crude in the past. So this time, the refineries are also going to have to first run tests and see just how much of any product, at what quantity and what quality are they going to be able to produce. So once all of that is factored in, it becomes difficult to assess exactly how much of a relief an average Pakistani is going to get at the pump. Are you hearing anything that this new agreement could create rising tensions between Pakistan and the U.S.? So this is a very important question. In April, uh, when Reuters broke the news that the deal had officially been reached, uh, the State Department was asked about this. And they clarified that they they're not going to prevent any country from acquiring Russian products. Uh, the State Department spokesperson said that every country is going to make their own sovereign decisions and that the United States understands the need for Russian energy products. So that was the message from Washington and the Pakistani ambassador to United States, uh, Ambassador Masood Khan, also at the same time in April told an audience at Washington-based think tank Wilson Center that the deal had a you know had the blessings of the U.S. basically. So the U.S. has very openly come out and said that it's not against the deal and that it understands the need that different countries have, but that it doesn't want the the Russian energy trade to become a windfall gain for Moscow uh, and become a tool for it to fund its war against Ukraine. VOA Pakistan Bureau Chief Sarah Zaman in Islamabad. Meanwhile, Reuters reports that Pakistan paid for the Russian fuel in Chinese currency. An exhibition of Ukrainian traditional clothing and unique art pieces opened in Los Angeles in support of Ukrainian artists. The goals are twofold, help the artists, but also help children in Ukraine. Kristina Shevchenka has the story narrated by Anna Rice. A unique exhibition showcasing embroidery work done by Ukrainian artists, many of whom were made refugees by Russia's invasion, opened in Los Angeles, California in March. The project aims to raise $700,000 to renovate the premises and buy all the necessary equipment for the new Children's Heart Surgery Center in Lviv, which will become only the second one in Ukraine. Artist Irina Kaluzhna is from Kharkiv. When Russia attacked her country in late February 2022, she was forced to flee and temporarily settled in the Netherlands. When the war started, I stayed in Kharkiv for maybe a week, and then I decided it was time I left because it was impossible to do anything. Back in Kharkiv, Irina had a collection of over 200 vintage Ukrainian costumes she was able to only take a handful with her. This costume here is from the Chernihiv region. It's a festive costume. Everything is handmade, from fabric to the embroidery. It was all done by hand. The unique costumes are showcased as part of a larger Ukrainian art exhibition organized by an art platform called Art Territory. More than 30 artists and sculptors are behind the works shown here. Most of them have become refugees and live outside of Ukraine, while others have joined Ukraine's armed forces. 
Konstantin Lizahoop, for example, you can see his works over there. At the moment he is protecting our country on the front lines. He joined the territorial defense in the first days of the war and has been there ever since. Exhibition visitors also had a chance to see military-themed posters made by Ukrainian artists in the first days of the war. It is a poster exhibition by 50 Ukrainian artists, 50 Ukrainian graphic artists, graphic designers. And it's really powerful and we want to show only Ukrainians in this exhibition particularly, just because it's really painful, it's really strong. The group's initial fundraising efforts will continue until mid-March. For Christina Shevchenko in Los Angeles, California, NRA's VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.